Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is John Congleton, and if you're not familiar with John, John is a Grammy Award-winning producer, engineer, mixer, writer, and musician who has worked with a ton of amazing artists such as St. Vincent, The Decemberist, Goldfrapp, Sharon Van Etten, and many, many more. And in this interview, we dive a lot into his approach to recording music and a lot of the philosophies that he has behind capturing music that sounds authentic. And as you'll hear in the interview, While John was learning the craft, he had the opportunity to work with Steve Albini. And if you're not familiar with Steve, Steve is a famous engineer who worked with bands like Nirvana, Shellac, and a whole bunch of other great bands. And Steve very much is someone who is very vocal about keeping the purity in music and recording things analog and having recordings that sound like the band is in the room. And this is very much a shared opinion of John as well. So we definitely get into that in this conversation, especially because Getting that kind of result is often one of the hardest things to do because there's more than just hitting record, right? You have to worry about the performances. You have to worry about the technical side of it. So in this interview, we definitely dive deeper into how to get these pure sounds and how to make authentic recordings. So with that said, I think you're definitely going to enjoy this episode. There's a lot of great advice that John shares here and a lot of cool stories as well. So without further ado, let's just jump right into the interview. John Congleton, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? How's it going with you? It's going great. For people who might not know you or might not be familiar with your background and your story and how you got into music and ultimately into engineering and producing, can you give us a little bit about that story and let us know how you got there? Nothing particularly exceptional about the story. Um, uh, I didn't particularly set out to be a producer, um, but I was really into, as long as I can remember... I was just into recorded sound and interested in how that happens. Uh, And um, essentially, uh, like the first record I ever bought with my own money was like a um, the Walt Disney uh, Spooky Sounds of the Haunted House record. I still have the record. Amazing. Um, And uh, I was really fascinated with just just recording in general, Um, but not necessarily recording music. Just I, I. really sort of got off on just listening to recorded sounds. Um, and there's something really amazing about those early Disney sound effect records where, um, first of all, they sound very strange uh, just in general. Like it sounds like all the sounds are very dreamlike. They don't sound hyper-realistic. They, you know, they have tons of effects on them or whatever. Some of those early records are actually between the speakers are 180 degrees out of phase I guess, to get the maximum uh, stereo width, right? Interesting. But um, obviously listening to something like that on headphones is an incredibly psychedelic and like nauseating experience. <laughs> but of course, those sorts of things, they were playing with the phase in general on all those recordings. And I, I remember like just being fascinated by that. Like what, why is, what is that sensation that gives this sort of field of depth whenever I listen to this thing? You know, I, it, like I didn't understand any of those things back, back in those days. So I was always interested in that, but then like getting in bands and playing, that was sort of separate. That was just sort of a thing that was familial because my 
father was in bands and there were instruments around. So whenever I got my first band together to record, I was 14, I think you're like, this is early 90s, 14 years old. We went and recorded and it was like sort of, uh, I've told this story many times, so uh, I'll try to get through it quickly. It was just sort of like the very first time in my life where I had like a Zen moment where I was just like, oh, this is what I want to do. This process was just so intriguing to me. And uh, it's it's hard to verbalize for somebody who's like maybe in their early 20s now who've who've like had their entire life documented in recordings and videos and iPhones and garage band and all the things that are just so accessible um, in your palm of your hand. But, you know, this was still at a time when it was um, a little bit magical to hear your music played back to you. Uh, and it was difficult to record your band. You actually had to have some money um, to do anything beyond like maybe a, you know, a four track recording. Um, so, you know, just going back in and hearing my music played back to me was like um, simultaneously exhilarating and uh, mystifying and soul crushing because it wasn't what I expected it to sound like. Uh, It was not as good as I heard in my head. So then it was sort of like, how do I get it to sound like it's in my head out there? So there was that. And then there was also just the process I was just incredibly intoxicated by. Just the process of doing it. And I wanted to learn everything about it immediately. So that's that. The guy who was recording the band... um, was he was he was a friend of my older sister's who's I had a sister who was six years older than me who played in bands and kind of got me into punk rock. Um and he took me under his wing uh and taught me how to record. He had um a, just like an eight-track recorder and he recorded all the local punk bands. So he basically said, here's a microphone, the microphone plugs into this, you take the mic level, you you Amplify it to line level, and you know line level goes to tape, and blah blah blah. Just the very basics. This is a preamp. This is an EQ. This is a fader. The shit that everybody has to learn. And that was it, man. Uh, and then I got uh, saved up enough money to buy a four track of my own, and I started recording myself. And I started recording the shitty bands that were in my suburb that I was growing up with. And uh, then I fell in with another studio that was. Um, uh, a 24 track studio and, and, and uh, shit, man, that that's it. It was just like one thing after another. And I never, I didn't even really understand what a producer was or, or let me, let me, let me uh, clarify that by saying I didn't have any aspirations to tell people what to do in the studio or, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't assume that I had any answers for those sorts of things. But what happened was by the time I was in my mid-20s. I had already toured the world many times over, made a lot of friends, uh, was recording bands all the time, really, really got a knack for it in terms of like doing it efficiently and affordably for bands. And people just started to ask me to produce or credit me as producer because I was able to help them do it affordably um, and efficiently. Um, again, this was back when things were, you know, it was harder to record your band. So, uh, you needed help in getting it done, uh, for the minuscule amount of money that you might've saved up. So that's how it happened. It happened really honestly. And, um, 
one, you know, everything, everything in my career has been a surprise. So it's like, so I'm producing and then all of a sudden I'm known as a producer and then, you know, I'm producing records where I start writing with people. So then I'm known as a writer and I'm mixing the records that I produce because, of, I mean, to me, mixing is just the thing you do at the end of a recording. It's not some black art or something. And then I'm, then people are asking me to mix records that I had nothing to do with. Uh, so the, now I'm a mixer and uh, it, it it's always constantly a delightful surprise when a new chapter opens up and I just sort of go along with it. And it's great because I'm sort of slightly allergic to doing the same thing over and over again. So one of the great privileges of what I get to do is I actually wear, I can wear many different hats. So I, I never get terribly bored because uh, I'm either, I'm either writing or I'm mixing or I'm producing, which I'm always engineering in some capacity, which is still something I love to do. Um, so I, you know, I, I, it's always changing, just producing in general is a different kind of job every time you do it. So, um, one of the great, like I said, one of the great things is I just never, never get terribly bored with it. Cause it's always a new challenge and different. That, that's awesome, man. Man, there's so much stuff there that I, I'd love to dive a little deeper with. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things that you had mentioned was like, you, you had no aspirations to become a producer and like telling bands what to do and that kind of thing. And I guess you've kind of evolved into that role. But um, I know that you worked with Steve Albini for a while. And Steve is very much of that mentality of like, he doesn't want to be known as the producer. Um, and so I'm curious to know, like, was that why you gravitated towards work, working with Steve? And, and is that kind of how that happened? Or uh, I'm of a generation of people that if if you were repelled by mainstream rock music or music, you were kind of by proxy attracted to somebody like Steve, who um, almost was an archetype of like how to do things yourself and do it your own way and, and not aim for a target, uh, shoot an arrow and just expect the target to come to you. Uh, and you know, my heroes in music have always been iconoclasts. Uh, Steve uh, is one of those people, uh, Brian Eno, uh, just people that kind of do things their own way and ignore uh, the criticism and just sort of have enough faith in their own instincts that the people that are interested in working with you will find you. Uh, that philosophy or that approach has served me well Granted, I don't have aspirations to be uh, famous making horrible music. There are plenty of producers I know who make music that they don't like, but there's something about the sort of, they're addicted to the sort of the notoriety, but if you get them on a one-on-one, -on -one, they're like, yeah, this is garbage, but you know, <laughs> it's streaming well or whatever, which yeah. I just can't live my life that way. Uh, nothing against those people, though. Uh, people got to do whatever they want to do. So yes, I was attracted to people like Steve when I was young. I mean, this was the early '90s. It was uh, you were you know this was the age of the sellout, and and uh, you know signing to a major label would make you would cause you to lose friends. That was a real thing. Um, and Steve, you know, I held Steve up as as somebody who um, operated with integrity, and that was important to me and my friends at that time. Uh, it's still important to me, but. 
times have changed in a lot of ways. You have to sort of look at this a little differently and you have to put it in context. So yes, Steve, um, I, I like just to clarify, I don't know if I would ever say I worked with Steve a lot. Steve was highly inspirational and helped me out a lot in the beginning. Uh, I was living in Chicago. Uh, you know, he, he took me under his wing and gave me a lot of great advice. And there's something that Steve did or does or said either me directly or indirectly that I think influences how I operate every day, uh, professionally. Um, so yes, I was, I was attracted to that sort of thing. Um, and Steve is a literally, I don't like using words like genius or brilliant when it comes to music because, um, sort of arbitrary but Steve has a real brilliance to him in the way he can engineer Steve's Steve thinks the hardest thing in the world is to make something sound accurately like what it sounds right you know the idea I think that he feels like I'm totally putting words in his mouth here and, and he should speak for himself if you ever interview him or have interviewed him is why Steve is like, why would I fuss with trying to tell a band what to play or how to play when it takes up a full bandwidth for me just to go and listen to the instrument, the way it sounds in the room and try to replicate that. That's a really inspiring way to look at it, in my opinion. Um, That like, why would I distract myself from just this very complicated endeavor? of just trying to reproduce a sound. I respect that a lot. Regardless of that, uh, that's not where I ended up exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, I, my, my career uh, led me by the bullring somewhat uh, to many other uh, challenges. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I agree with Steve that just recording something to sound like what it sounds like is still the hardest fucking thing in the world. It is really fucking easy to throw any microphone in front of any mic source or plug an instrument in and then run it through 900 iterations of plugins to come up with something that is intriguing in that way. And um, that's essentially how music is getting made a lot now is uh, manipulation, manipulation, manipulation. Um, And there's no judgment against that. Um, but I think that all these people that are doing that, um, would be fucking screwed to just have a tape machine, a mic pre and some microphones at this point. Of course. (laughs) Um, a lot of the, a lot of these people don't understand basic signal flow. Don't understand any of the science of recording whatsoever. Um, uh, and, uh, that's a shame. I think because that's where it's really challenging and really fucking fun. I agree, man. It's it's so much like because the technology is there and the plugins are there, people just have this natural tendency to just want to like cover up their mistakes and like try to fix it with a plugin as opposed to just like really stripping things down to the very basics. And, and often that's just the better way, you know, like you're going to get a much better sound when you're not fucking with it so much and trying to manipulate it to get the sound you want when really just moving a mic around or, choosing the right mic or something like that can make a difference. Absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's influenced the way people, the artists make records. Um, it's influenced how they write. It's influenced what they expect when they come into the studio. 
which all is uh, one of the reasons why records just sound the way they sound now. No judgment. Just this is just a, a an overarching sort of look at it. As um, artists are able to make things in a nonlinear digital editing platform before they ever come into the studio, and they've become fond of those sounds, or they've become fond of the fact that any old thing can get manipulated to sound like something compelling. That's not to say that there aren't brilliant things happening um, that I see happening outside of records I do and in some cases in the records I do uh, that I think turn out great in that process. Uh, I love manipulating things. I've always loved it. Um, I... Uh, I love like music concrete style recording and and just taking a non-musical thing and making it musical. I've always been into that sort of thing. But the contrarian in me deeply desires to make records not that way right now. We're getting off on a tangent now, but like, I mean, one of my, one of the things I keep saying to bands is, um, or artists is like, I really hope somebody comes to me soon and says, I want to make a record with no manipulation, no distortion, no reverb. Like, basically try to make a record, you know, like, I mean, I don't even like this band that much. But, like, if somebody came in and said, I want to make a record like Steely Dan, I would be so fucking pumped right now. I would be, I would welcome that. Uh, that Because, ultimately, one of the things I keep telling people is like, that shit's gonna come back in fashion, you know? It's like, it's just a matter of time before somebody makes that hip again. Might as well be you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, anyways, I'm getting off on a tangent there. But, like, um, I do I do desperately sometimes miss being able to flex just um, my, my ability to record things. Just record things. Yeah, I love that. Well, I mean, like you said, I mean, it really you know, getting music to sound exactly the way it sounds in the room is, is a big challenge. And it's the hardest thing. Yeah. It is the hardest thing. So then with that said, what are some of your tips for doing that? Cause some people would think, well, isn't it the easiest thing? Because you just like put up a microphone wherever and you're just like, you just capture the room and you're done. Like, so, you know, some people might think it's that simple. So like, maybe you can give us a little bit more detail as to why it's so difficult and how to, how to tackle those things to get that accuracy wow i mean it's just so, there's <laughs> it's a so, question. <laughs> so many yeah, there's so many different ways to answer that question i'm actually still just thinking um if you think it's the easiest thing then i would assume you're not paying attention <laughs> <laughs> because no engineer producer on earth hasn't at some point, if they've made at least a few records, at some point listened to an amp, for example, a guitar amp, and gone, that sounds great, put a microphone in front of it, gone in front of the speaker in the control room, and been deflated by the fact that it doesn't sound like that. That happens maybe 90% of the time. (laughs) I mic up an amp, you know? Like, I mean, I always am like... I'm almost always less impressed by what's coming through the speaker than what's coming out in front of the sound source. Now, sometimes that's just sheer volume and how much that impresses you. But I always sort of want to just start with synthesizing the experience of standing in front of the sound source. That's where I start, always. Because the assumption should be that this player 
has spent some marginal amount of time making the decision of what that should sound like. So that's where I like to start. Um, as far as how to do that, um, well, uh, I mean, I kind of feel like I'm reaching back way into my old old school sort of brain to like answer that question, but I can give you a few things that sure. that um that I do. Uh you know, um this is just sort of my boilerplate sort of idea. Um normally I go and listen to the sound source. Let's let's just say it's a guitar amp since that's what we started on. If it's a guitar amp and the guitar player says, I love the way my guitar amp sounds. Um, normally what I'll do is I'll go and listen to it and then, you know, draw upon my sensory response of making records for 27 years now about a microphone or microphones that would be flattering to that. And usually what I like to do is, in a broad sense, pick a dark and a bright version of that. Um, So, for example, just an example, there would be like some, you know, I would pick a ribbon microphone for the 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 dark and I would pick a maybe a large diaphragm condenser for the bright. Uh, pick those two based upon what I think would be flattering. Uh, if the if the uh, player really likes the way it sounds in the room, then I would throw up a, a, a an omni microphone for an ambient sound, for example. And sometimes I will delay that ambient sound slightly so it gives more of the the feeling of standing in the room. This is assuming that we want it to be literal. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I would go into the control room and I would listen to the mi- the microphones without anything on it, no compression, other just just the e- maybe EQ um, if if it needs it. And then a lot of times, what I'll do is I'll pick my favorite of the two microphones, believe in that microphone, and then try to beat the microphone, the other microphone, like put up another one to try to beat it. This is if I have time to do such a thing. Um, that's sort of just the beginnings of that. Um, and that's trying to not do anything at all to it. And uh, you could spend all day trying to get a, you know, a reproduction of that sound that sounds like what you're standing in front of. You shouldn't spend all day. But uh, <laughs> that, would be, uh, that would be how I would do, record something like that, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess, you know, going back to what I was asking, you know, I think some people might think, oh, it's just so easy because you just let somebody just perform. But you do have to really segment out the fact that the performance is only one half is one part is one part of the big picture. There is mm. obviously the technical side of it. And, you know, like you said, like choosing the right microphone to, to get the sound that you're hearing in the room and all that kind of stuff, like all of that comes into play to make that sound feel like you're in the room. So, it, there, yeah. you know, I, I agree with you that it is, it is very difficult to do because you, you know, you're the mic, the mic will always sound different than your ears do. Always. I mean, you, uh, first of all, and most people don't listen to an, uh, an amplifier where their ear <laughs> next <Fair>. to it. <laughs> um, but if it was as easy as just putting a room mic up and that sounded like what it sounded like, we would all just do that and and carry on with our day. Um, you're trying to synthesize not only the sonics, but the experience, um, which is horrendously hard, if not impossible. It, you know, it's very, very, very challenging. Um, and uh, nobody seems to really bother with it much these days. Um, I mean, if I could extrapolate slightly, I mean, some of the best recordings I've ever heard in my life are old jazz recordings. Um, and um, I think a lot of that is because um, it's one microphone <laughs> or two microphones, in, you know, and it's placed 
in the appropriate place. The musicians are standing in an appropriate place. And it's all about just the performance and the dynamics. And, um, uh, you know, uh, and a lot of people want to say, why, why, um, why don't drums sound like John Bonham now, for example? Uh, I mean, those are like, that's just like three microphones recording the drums there. And I think what, why that shit sounds so great is it's a commitment into playing into the recording. John Bonham was, you know, everybody thinks of him as like a basher when really he wasn't. Um, it was just all about the technique of trying to get it to sound that way. Um, there's the old story that goes around. Um, I think it was Led Zeppelin too, uh, that apparently like they were setting up and John Bonham had headphones on and they were getting microphones kind of like pulling microphones up, right? So he was hearing what was happening. And there was a microphone that I do not think was intended to be for the drums, but it was in the hallway. And he said, what's that? That's what I want my drums to sound like. And it was sort of like, well, sounds great, but all we hear are cymbals in that microphone because, <laughs> you know, not, not getting the bass response. And he said, I don't care. That's what I want my drums to sound like. So apparently, and I'm sure that this is somewhat myth- mythologized, Apparently what happened is they stopped the session and John Bonham practiced for two days listening to that microphone, how to play into that microphone. And uh, that's how you kind of, I mean, if you notice, the John Bonham was always amazing, but the, the Led Zeppelin drum sound that we know and love is not on the first record. That was sort of cultivated um, to where you finally get to something like when the levee breaks. Um, and I think that was a commitment to making, you know, recording a certain way. And I think it was also John Bonham's love of jazz, probably, uh, yeah. that sort of minimalist recording. Another thing that I think is actually, this is d- d- that I've found very helpful that maybe your listeners would like is it's so much about the technique and advising somebody how to play, but you don't want to. You don't want to tell people how to play, obviously, because there's something that is idiomatic and, and special to them, and you don't want them to you don't want to get a stifled performance. So one thing I found to be very helpful, because I do so much love the way recording sound with a few microphones, is to set up a microphone where you really love where like for drums, for example, this is perfect for drums. Uh, set up a microphone where you love the way the bass drum and the snare drum sounds. Everybody's experienced this, where it's like, wow, the bass drum and snare drum sounds so fucking great. But when they play the hi-hat, I'm fucking devastated by how it sounds, <laughs> because it just swallows it up. This is one thing that I love to do, is set that microphone up and only give the drummer that microphone. Don't give them any other microphones whatsoever in the headphone mix. And watch how they'll play differently. Give, you mean like give them the hi-hat mic so that that's... Give them, no, like, for example, set up a microphone where you love the way the drums sound. Yeah. You love the bass drum and the snare drum, and maybe the drummer loves the way they sound. Give them only that microphone and the headphones. Don't give them the bass drum. Don't give them the snare drum. Don't give them anything except that one microphone and see how the performance gets sounding better. Yeah. Um, I found that to be extraordinarily useful to do. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because if the drummer is hearing, like, the drummer will always play into what they're hearing. And it's kind of like in a way, almost like that, like going back to that Bonham reference, it's if, if you were to, if you were to give someone that hi-hat mic in your example there of uh, like where it's too loud, 
you know, they would they would hear so much hi hat that they would probably play a little bit quieter to like subdue that a little bit and and Absolutely. then you probably get a little bit more of that balance that you're looking for in the end, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's another technique that's uh, that's obviously very much an, another technique. Um, one of the things that I feel like is really useful about using a mono mic that just kind of has the whole drum kit is we at some point forgot that a drum kit is just an instrument. It's almost sort of like you don't mic every individual string of an acoustic guitar, right? Um, you know, back in jazz, that's the way they thought about it. They didn't even think of the bass drum as being the heartbeat. The bass drum was an accent. You know, it was more about the ride cymbal mm-hmm. in early jazz music. Um, so, uh, you know, all that stuff is recorded with one microphone um, because they're just trying to capture the sound of an instrument. Um, so um, I think that if really good drummers normally think of their drums as an instrument, and I think that if you record them that way and uh, let them hear it that way, they will do you a lot of favors with how they play. Of course. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. It's like, it's <laughs> in a way, it's kind of like um, producing through headphone mixes. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> was, I, I'm a big believer in that, actually. Getting the headphone mix right will do a lot for performance. Yeah, it's like rather than tell someone play this or do this, just like let them come up with that themselves and just just feed them what they need to hear to make that decision. I really agree with that. That's very I mean, that's not what I'm saying, but that's what I've been saying. Yeah, (laughs) Um, it is. uh, Use the headphones as as a production tool. Um, And. That's one of the most boring things about making records is trying to get a headphone mix right because uh, everybody wants to just fucking get to work, you know? Um, but, I mean, I think I learned that from singers, like really good singers, who really needed their headphones to be right to make sure that their feel and their intonation uh, was correct. Um, because for years of recording punk rock bands, you know, and I would record the vocals, you know, it was usually amelodic and, and just kind of screaming or something, and they just didn't even want to hear the vocals whenever they... <laughs> They recorded. So it's like there were a lot of things I learned from recording bad musicians or substandard musicians, great artists, but maybe not great musicians. Just so we're clear, I distinguish that in a in a very respectful way. Um, you know, they were just like I, I learned so many tricks about like recording people with bad technique, quote unquote bad technique, that by the time I started recording great musicians, I thought I was a fucking genius <laughs> because it was so easy. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, it's like all all of this stuff comes comes together, right? Just with your years of experience, right? You learn you learn those things that work and the the things that don't. You know, it's just like like how to talk to an art how to talk to an artist and coach them versus you know the right the the right way and the wrong way. I guess you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Well, it's it's interesting because you know all of us talk about you know getting it right at the source and and kind of manipulating headphone mixes or mic positioning and that kind of stuff you you had mentioned earlier that this stuff can take a lot of time to get right and to to really dial in the right sound but at the same time you're also well known for working really fast and you mentioned mm-hmm. that you like to work fast so I do. what are so what are some of the what are some of the systems that you've created for yourself to allow you to work so quickly and efficiently uh no when something's not working like avoid the temptation of like trying to get something to work if it isn't effortless. It should feel uh, actually um, somebody uh, who never does interviews, but is a friend of mine. And if you did interview him, he would probably say this. He, I remember he said this to me 
uh, Nigel Godrich, I remember one time said, if it's not if it's if it's not working in the first five minutes, just completely do something different. Which is, I think he has the reputation for being somebody who really sits there and tweaks. Uh, and that's not untrue, but I mean, N- Nigel, you know, he he's a pretty instinctual guy too. Uh, and uh, I remember him saying that to me, and I remember it just being like, um, I had never put it that succinctly, but that's how I had always felt as well. It was like, put up a snare drum, uh, if it's not sounding good in the room right away, then it's probably not worth working on. You know, like get it, get you, you, you know, within the first five minutes, if this is cool or not, you, and then there's just that thing where it's like, ah, oh, we got to ma- be able to make it work. I see fucking engineers all the time. Like before they're even like got a microphone in front of it, they've patched up compression and EQ and they're just sitting there twiddling. like, you know, right away, if it's going to work, you know, you, you, you'll hear it and you'll go, okay, yeah, that, that's great. That just maybe needs a little bit of this or it's a little dynamic or whatever and move the fuck on. Same for parts either. Uh, Chick Corea always said, if you don't hear something, don't play something. Um, a lot of times in the studio, um, you know, uh, oh, you're like, this needs something. Somebody's like, this ne- this part needs something. And then they set up a fucking keyboard and scroll for like, you know, an hour. And um, and maybe sometimes you, that's not the right thing to do. The, the right thing to do is just to let it sit fallow until it reveals itself what needs to happen. Um, so just avoid wormholes. That's the best thing to save time. I do work really quickly. Part of one of the reasons why I work quickly is because I'm, I'm, I for years got chops of how to make things work fast. Um, in in LA, the city is sort of lousy with people who take forever to do things, and um, that's not to say that um, these people don't make great records, but it turns into slightly an oppressive and um, uh, exhaustive experience for the artist. And uh, sometimes there's a power imbalance, I feel like, that happens when the producer or the engineer is taking a really long time to do something. The artist kind of starts to feel like it's the producer's show or it's the artist's show. Uh, excuse me, it's the engineer's show. And I really, really don't like that. Like, I, I ultimately don't... I, I mean, I guess that there's some sort of, like, the artist might be looking to me to help them be the vehicle for a vision, but I don't ever want to set up a situation where the artist feels like it's my show. Cause I don't feel that way. So moving fast, uh, keeping things inspiring, uh, you know, like never getting bogged down on something, uh, is crucial to working quickly and, and making records quickly, but also just keeping the spirit high and inspiration high. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I love what you touched on there with the idea of like balancing the needs of the producer versus the artist. Because, yeah, yeah, I mean, the producer, you know, we all want the projects that we work on to sound incredible and to like have this like perfect vision that we hear in our heads. But at the end end of the day, it really does come down to the artist. And if we if we pull them away from that creative flow that they're in just because we want to achieve our own sound, then like the rest of the project suffers as a result of that. Totally agree. And I mean, another thing about it's important for me personally as somebody who's committed their life to this 
in terms of being good at it to work on a lot of different things and not get bogged down on certain things because let's put it this way. If I made a record a year or two records a year, even um, I probably would be just as neurotic as artists about how that record turned out. Whereas when I know that I'm, my job is to help people and do, I'm going to work on multiple things. There's a liberation that comes from that of like, this doesn't need to turn out like exactly what I'm hearing in my head. Like there's a thrill of discovery that I can embrace in the fact that I know that this is their life's work and I'm just going to move on to something else. And it's not to say that it isn't very important to me because every record's important to me. But it's not, it, it, it can't be more important to me than it is to the artist. That's fucked up if it is, actually. <laughs> um, so um, the fact that I know that, oh, I'm, you know, get them next time, that kind of thing. Oh, like, well, the artist is stoked. I would have done things maybe a little bit differently here and there, but it doesn't matter because, I, you know, I've got five more records coming up in the next whatever. Uh, I love that. I love the feeling that uh, every record is just one big tapestry in what I try to do. And uh, I, I, I love that freedom. And also for me, the product, the thing that ends up in the record store or that you stream on Spotify or whatever, is m- not even in the top five most important things to me about making a record. That's great. By, by the time that's out there, it's... N- it's so totally not none of my business um, because how people respond to it, it's their problem as far as I'm concerned. How they listen to it, none of my business. What's important to me is uh, going in every day, enjoying what I do, being present, um, kind of riding that wave of creativity and uh, being square with the artist or the band um, and 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 letting them thrive like that's it's it's all about the process and the moments for me um the record itself is 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 just a souvenir i love that <laughs> it's so true though <laughs> i mean it's really in my opinion it's the it's the only healthy way to look at it um anything else becomes an exercise in your ego um and um Ego destruction is is super important to me. It's something I work at every day. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, no, it's it's so true though. It's like the longer you spend working on a project, the more you're going to just start to get neurotic about it and start to overanalyze things. Yeah, and precious and also not objective. Yeah. Exactly. Which is the absolute worst thing a producer can be. That's literally what you're hired to be is objective. If artists could be objective, we'd all be out of work. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it's like I, I read something not that long ago that said something about I think the stat was that 35% of people turn off a song within the first 30 seconds of listening to yeah. it. And when you, like, ex- it. when you extrapolate that, that means that 35% of people are able to, to establish right away whether that song meets like the feel and the expectations that they have of what makes a good song. And as an engineer, it's like you have to have that same sort of gut reaction to the music. And if you start yeah. if you start overreacting and, and like overanalyzing everything and taking so much time, then you've lost that objectivity that you that, that the, the listeners are going to have. So totally agree. I mean, that one thing that we'll never be able to do is have the experience of what it sounds like to hear the hear it for the first time. 
Yeah. Uh, I remember reading something that one of the members of Pink Floyd said, where, you know, they're talking about Dark Side of the Moon, which was such a big record for me growing up. Uh, and they're just like, ah, it's a bummer that I, you know, I mean, I like, I think it's a cool record, but I, I'll, you know, he was kind of not, he's kind of saying, I don't really know what the big deal is. And I kind of wish I could hear it <laughs> the first time. And I thought that was really profound, as, as simple as that was. It, you know, it, it, to jerk producers off for a second, to talk about what producers can do really well. I mean, 35% of the people who listen to records, you, you know, like the, the people that turn that off. I mean, first of all, let's classify the fact that maybe probably 80% of people who listen to music aren't serious music listeners. Fair. Sure. Probably even bigger. And that's fine. That is absolutely, absolutely fine. That they, the music is just the back, backdrop to their lifestyle. That is totally fine. Um, so putting that in perspective is one thing. But then another thing, if I can actually say one thing that producers really can do, really do well, I think great production, one way to measure great production is when you're like in a coffee shop or a restaurant or something like that and a song comes on and it's like the first three seconds of the song, you immediately know what song it is. What, what an amazing feeling that is to me. Like songs I don't even like, I love that feeling of like, like um, Be My Baby. You know what song that is in the first millisecond of the bass drum. <laughs> And like, what brilliant production that is. Like, that is so exactly what it is. Or uh, Billie Jean. Um, it, these, are, th- these are just songs that come to mind, right? Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know what song it is by the sound of the bass drum, the first bass drum hit. That's fucking cool. Like, that's, <laughs> re- that's really great production to me. So, you know, that's one thing that producers can do. Um, you know who I think is amazing at that more than anyone else, actually, and he's not even considered a producer, is David Bowie. When you listen to David Bowie's records, or you listen to the records he produced, like The Idiot, Iggy Pop, or Walk on the Wild Side, fucking brilliant production. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant production of just so identifiable, of so like finding a thing and drilling down on that and not distracting anything else from that. That's just brilliant production. I love that. Yeah, it's so true. Like, yeah, you listen to like a snippet of those songs and you immediately know, you know, and I I find myself even like sometimes the radio will be playing and like I can, if I just turn onto a station, I can hear just a snippet of the song and and almost with the songs that I'm familiar with, I can almost identify like, oh, they're at the second chorus or something like that because there's a feel in the second chorus too, you know? So it's like, there's there's a magic to that whereas now with so many people just like copying and pasting things all the time, it's like, it's just so stale and it doesn't grow. There's no, there is no feeling to it. Yeah. Copy and paste is a bummer, man. Like, it's, um, there are, there there's a lot of music out there that, I mean, I love repetition in music personally. Like, I, I love minimalism. Um, but there is definitely something to be said for musicians playing the same thing over and over again <laughs> as opposed to a loop. It's just different. I'm not trying to say one's better or worse, but um, there's certainly something different about that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of feel and and 
you know, you're mentioning some songs that have drums as kind of the, the first thing you can quickly identify. Um, one of the things that really stands out to me when I listen to your productions is the sound of your drum tones. And maybe it's just because I'm a drummer, so I just gravitate to that kind of stuff. But I just really admire the sound of your drums. And in particular, your snares, I think snares are always the hardest thing to mix. But I think you do a great job of giving your drums, especially your snares, like this really fat tone that to me almost... It's it almost sounds like electronic to some degree. Like you you have this like fatness to it that that I really admire. So I'm curious to know like when it comes to capturing a great snare sound, what are some of your tips for that? Well, I don't know if I have tips. I've gone through so many different ways of recording snare drums. I think that it it would be easier if you referenced something and I talked about it. I think that for a long time, I was obsessed with the idea of getting the sound of a snare in the room accurately, and then I moved away from that. Uh, like, instead of doing that, trying to figure out ways to get it, you know, how do I get it really dry? And um, now I sort of, now I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, whatever it, you know, whatever we want it to sound like, I'm down for. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm equally not intimidated and mystified by both. I think I spent a super duper long time looking for the perfect snare drum microphone. Uh, I never could settle for a lot of the boilerplate answers to recording microphone, uh, recording snares. Uh, when I was coming up in the 90s, you almost would be arrested if you didn't record the snare with an SM57. Um, every, 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 everyone recorded it with a 57, and I hated the way it fucking sounded. Like, it never sounded good to me. I hated the mid-range. And I felt like something was deeply wrong with me that I didn't like it. That was one of the things that I really connected with Steve about is he disliked it too. And I always loved his snare drum sounds. So I was like, there's something that he hears that I hear. Um, so anyway, so I went on a huge, huge journey of looking for the perfect snare drum microphone. And spoiler alert, there's no perfect snare drum <laughs> microphone. There's lots of snare there's lots of microphones that are are good that are better on different snare drums so you just it's 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 fundamental recording of snare drums and fundamental recording listen to the snare is it a dark dark snare that you want to be brighter then use something with a brighter capsule <laughs> uh if it's a bright snare that you want to be darker than uh yeah. Okay. So you know, like, is is he really hitting the snare hard? Okay, you're probably going to want something that can take high SPL, but still has clarity in the mid range, and has good cancellation, so you're not getting tons of hi hat bleed. Spoiler alert: that's why everyone was using SM57s because of those three <laughs> things. Um, but there are so many microphones that do that that sound better to me. Um, so I can be specific, but those that's essentially. Uh, that's essentially what I do. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I mean, I could be wrong, but it sounds like you'd like to lean on saturation for your snare sounds as well to get some of that fatness. Is it is that true? Like, do you drive your preamps at all or add any saturation in post? Or, uh, Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I was probably one of the people that maybe uh, accidentally popularized distorting the fuck out of drums. <laughs> uh, I still love doing that. Uh, but yeah, again, you know, it's, 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 it's a crutch whenever, if you're just trying to get in a normal <laughs> based, uh, you know, and baseline, uh, drum sound, but, um, saturation, yes, it's a tool just like anything else is, you know, I do, uh, 
I do a lot of reamping of things. Um, I think a lot of people hear that on my snare drums. Um, a lot of times I amp drums while they're being recorded. Uh, sometimes I'll be running the snare drum, the bass drum, anything through uh, guitar pedals or um, different types of saturation. Or sometimes uh, I will have a standalone microphone that's going to a guitar amp that's just recording the drums too, and I'm recording that amp. Um, I do quite a bit of that. So you'll feed your drums back through an amp, or you're doing this in real time? What I will do is I'll use an independent microphone for that, because otherwise it will be horrendously out of phase, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like yep. by the time, it, like if you take a, let's say you have a, a, a microphone on your snare, and you take that microphone and you record that microphone, and you split that microphone off and send it to an amplifier and then mic that amplifier and then record that, that mic. And it will be very, very probably unflatteringly out of phase with the direct microphone. So what I normally do is I'll have an independent microphone that's placed somewhere flattering uh, that's feeding into an amp. Gotcha. If that, if that makes sense. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. I, I, you don't hear too often of people reamping drums, and it, it is a pretty cool approach. And the fact that you can get some cool distortion and all that kind of stuff out of the amps like just offers you a whole new palette to work with, right? Sure. Uh, uh, again, I mean, another thing, we've already talked about this, but another thing I really, really try to do is record the microphone with as few microphones as possible. I record the drums with as few microphones as possible. I want, my dream is always to have one microphone that the drums sound great in, and I don't need anything else. Now, of course, you end up needing the other microphones because you need clarity once you have a lot, you know, like people want the guitars loud, you've got to have clarity to the bass drum or snare drum. But I I always endeavor, if possible, to have one microphone that I'm like, man, the drums just sound great with that, and try to work around that. Um, it's very hard to do that, but that's what I try to do. It's like the simpler the mix, the more chance you can get away with that single microphone. Exactly. I mean, a lot of my favorite recordings is Neil Young, things like that. You know, it's like, it's like, that's fucking two microphones. I can tell just by listening to it. The phase is immaculate. Yeah. <laughs> it actually kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier, but just getting the sound right in the room and just like, you know, manipulating the sound based on positioning and, and simplifying the process and, um, yeah, I just think that's fun. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm a nerd, but I find that actually more fun than sitting there and twisting knobs. Yeah, that makes sense. As far as like, like you are you typically like an analog kind of guy, or do you lean on the digital technology at all? Or okay, uh, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, I started making records on tape. Um, I love making records on tape mainly because of the process. The problem is everybody's brains work at Pro Tools speed now Mm -hmm. because they've recorded their demos on Pro Tools or they've made their last record on Pro Tools or they've made every fucking record they've ever made on Pro Tools, which is certainly the way people under 30 have probably worked. I think a lot of people fetishize tape and they want to record on tape because of what they think it will do. But of course, what they're thinking of the sound of tape is when you use tape wrong <laughs> you know uh you know hitting the tape too hard or over uh, over or under biasing or not aligning the machines i i agree that that's a vibey sound 
I agree that that's a cool sound, but you're not being a purist when you do that. You're you're using tape in the way that it wasn't supposed to be. So uh, there's a little bit of, of a conflict there of like what people are actually going for. Um, so if people want to work on tape, I normally want to just sort of drill down and see what what it is they're actually looking for. I would fucking love it if somebody called me and said, we want to make the whole record on tape. We never want to hit Pro Tools. We want to mix down to tape. We want to just get great sounds. And that's that. I would be fucking stoked to do a record like that right now. I haven't done a record quite like that in, you know, maybe about three years. Yep. It's funny that you said what you did because I had Vance Powell on the podcast recently and he said the exact same thing about tape. And was just mm. like, everyone is using tape wrong these days, thinking that like yeah. you got to overdrive it and that's the sound of tape. And it's like, it's not. It's just meant to sound no. really clear. I mean, the, the, what people were trying to do with tape was make it sound not like tape. And all the shit that people fetishize about it, that was them trying, they, they didn't want that. They were trying to get away from it. So it's like, if somebody says, oh, I want to record to tape, because I want that real tapey sound, and they're working on like an 827, I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, like, you're not, this is not going to give you what you want. I mean, that was the Rolls Royce of tape machines. Everybody loved it because it sounded the most transparent. So, yeah, it's a funny thing. I, I think that when people say they want to record to tape, it's, I have to, I have to ask more questions nowadays. Uh, well, I also think too that it has to do with just like the sound of a different era, you know, like, Back in the day, there wasn't all of this like overhyped top end on these recordings. They were a little bit darker and like, you know, things were a little less artificial sounding, you know. So because of that, there was a specific sound and people just associate that sound with the technology that was that was being used. But that technology could be used in, in today's day, too, and, and still get you know, modern sound. Totally agree. I totally think that you can make a record like that in Pro Tools. Problem is, is that nobody can bear it because pro tools is a venue or any anything like pro tools is a venue for manipulation not strict recording for sure simple as that it's like it's it's there it's malleable you can constantly change things um you can't do that with tape or it's a very big commitment to do it so people think twice um of course you can make a record like that in pro tools and I see people all the time, people I'm working with, people who I'm not working with, who claim that's the kind of record they want to make, but they can't help themselves. <laughs> they just cannot help themselves. There are records that are on the shelf right now by people I know and I'm friends with, people who I didn't make records with that aspired to make a record like the like 1973 and it's a Pro Tools fucking disaster when you listen to it. <laughs> it's so true. It's like, if you wanted that Motown sound or whatever, like, you would pretty much, to do it in a Pro Tools session, you would basically need to make sure you don't have any plugins on at all, you know? It's, no plugins, I mean, no plugins or very few plugins, and use them, use them in the way that you would have used our out, outboard in a logical way. Uh, fucking way, 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 way less microphones. That's if you really want things to sound older, just use less microphones. <laughs> so true, though. <laughs> nobody can nobody can get this through their fucking head, though. I mean, myself included, to a certain degree. You just you, that that ability to control things is too seductive. 
Yeah, a Motown, right? You know, like the, it's like a microphone over over the the drum kit, you know, uh, and that's it. And the drummer had to play consistently and dynamically correct for in order for it to sound good. There is an insistence on performance with those kinds of recordings that people can't uh, can't withstand so much these days. Of course, yeah, I remember going to the Motown studio and seeing just like the setup that they had there. And it's like, yeah, it was like one mic right above the drum kit because that was yeah. just that was just all they had the room for, really, at that at that place, you know. But but that was the sound of it. Uh, yeah, it's not big. Yeah, yeah, it's just like everything was just super simple and wasn't, you know, as meticulously positioned as like we think we need to approach our mixes these days or recordings these days. So people really have no idea how fucking slapdick things were back in those days. One of the greatest things about the Get Back documentary, the Beatles documentary. Did did you did you see this? I, I I've seen parts of it yet, but I've seen parts of it, but I haven't watched the whole thing yet. I mean, I found it gloriously boring. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty uh, because, long, <laughs> you know. This is what I do for a living. But um, but I mean, there were certain things that I thought were super helpful for me as a producer for other people to see. Man, people really, you know, people really love to sip the bathwater of the Beatles about how that shit was recorded. And I loved that you were able to see how people were just knocking mics over and like just placing them willy nilly. <laughs> and uh, Paul McCartney sitting there playing Let It Be and Ringo Starr yawning because he's bored. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's what it's really like. I mean, like, th- we love those records because the songs are great, the performances are great, but also because they couldn't fuck with it. They just couldn't. They would, you know, this is the biggest band in the world recording on eight tracks. And they, they, you know, they had to decide what things sounded like. Or they, re, you know, they, they had to say, that's what, that's good. Or we, they redid it. It's as simple as that. And like, you know, we have to decide what the drum sound is right now because we got the string section coming in in an hour. And we got to bounce it down to a mono channel. So commit, commit, yeah. commit, commit. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be funny if if the Beatles still existed today. Like, you know, they'd probably oh, be like yeah. they'd probably be like an EDM band or something like that. Like, where like just super manipulative. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I don't bow to the altar of the Beatles like some people. I mean, I those gr- recordings are great, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I would fucking hate to hear what they're doing now. <laughs> yeah, totally. it would be a disaster. <laughs> that includes like. Uh, Jimi Hendrix and any of those people that we kind of like uh, somehow would have been impervious to these uh, seductive uh, techniques. 100% agree with that for sure. I mean, can you imagine uh, Jimi Hendrix with MIDI? Oh my God. MIDI in the 80s? What a disaster. Or like him playing an Evertune guitar or something like that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Through a Kemper. All the, you know, and all that shit would have happened. He just, it just would have happened. Like Jimi Hendrix was obsessed with new technology. Yeah. He loved it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, going back to the, to the drums and, and kind of talking about this like analog digital kind of approach, like, are you incorporating samples into your recordings at all? Or are you still sticking to just pretty much raw drums? Uh, it depends. It depends on what we're going for. If we're going for something that sounds like, exceptionally punchy and hip hoppy or something like that, then there's almost no way that you can't not use triggers to achieve that sound. 
Yeah. Um, if we're not, then no, not normally. Um, there's a lot of different ways to achieve that sort of punch without using triggers. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of gates in general. Uh, blending a natural sound with a hyper-gated sound. I do a lot of that. Um, I think a lot of people hear that, and they think it's triggers uh, on things I do. Um, yeah, I, I mean, everything's up for grabs Yeah. Uh, right. as, far as, uh, as far as that. I think that, like, one thing I, I do like, I do have um, a lot of fondness for, like, filtering sounds and sending that through a reverb or something like that. So, um, you know, I'll take the snare drum sound, take all the top end out of it and put that through a reverb or some sort of short decay to make it sound like there's some depth to the snare or something like that, or bass drum or toms, you know, anything like that. Subtle things like that. That's cool. Yeah, that's definitely a cool approach. Uh, considering a lot of people will typically do it the opposite way where they'll send the full, full quality signal to a reverb and mm-hmm. then EQ the reverb afterwards, you know. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, not nothing wrong with doing that. That's not, I don't usually have, I mean, this is the great crazy thing about what we do is like people's processes, you know, like you'll, you'll, you'll try a process that you hear about and it just doesn't sound good to you, but you like it when somebody else does it. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, one last question about drums. Um, when I when I listened to your drum tracks, another thing that stood out to me was your kick drum sounds. And you have this really great way of getting your drums to sound really punchy, and they've got a lot of mid-range to them, but you don't hear that typical, like, clickiness that I feel like I hear on all these modern recordings. Mm. So I'm curious to know, like, what is your approach to kick drum? Like, are you kind of taking the same approach with snare, where it's like, try to keep it as super simple? Or, or like, what is your approach there? Yeah, I mean, I think that the like how you don't hear a lot of click on bass drums is just because I don't care for that myself either. And it just so happens that most records, most artists I work with don't aren't looking for that either. The the hyper articulation of bass drums that was happening in the eighties and the nineties, um, that was something that I was rebelling against. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just didn't like it. That's the way corny records sounded to me. I am always amazed whenever I hear a bass drum with a lot of top end presence and I like it. I'm always like, Ooh, how do they do that? You know, how do they, how do they get that? I typically mic the, the batter side of the bass drum as well as the outside of the bass drum. So that's one thing. I really love the sort of throaty quality that you can get from a, from the actual batter side, the actual like, um, beater hitting the skin. Obviously that's a, um, a danger zone for all kinds of bleed there. But, you know, I like taking that and sort of manipulating that quite a bit. I feel like that's where I get a lot of that, what you're talking about, that sort of throaty quality, like low mid range, um, not super low end, but like, you know, around 100 uh, to 200. Um, I I just like bass drums when they sound that way, personally. You know, I, I do do a lot of multi-band EQ on bass drums, to get that to sort of like I will compress the um I will compress the top end quite a bit but uh uh sort of expand the low end like you know like when the person hits the bass drum I'm like compressing the top end uh to like minimize that and then like blooming part of the that beefy sort of low end that I like so much this is all just sort of my taste 
uh, normally. And if people that I'm working with don't like it, then I, I pull away from that. That makes sense. And, and it's a cool approach to take to actually like mic up the other side with, with the beater and, you know, then yeah, through, through the multiband compression, you can definitely fuck with the sound quite a bit and really shape it to get that, that punchiness that you want. Yeah. Or sometimes I'll side chain the snare drum to that, meaning to say when the snare drum is hit, it, it, it compresses extremely. So I don't get a bunch of snare drum rattle in the, that bass drum microphone. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Cool, man. Well, dude, that, that, like I have, I've learned a lot ton. Like from, I've learned a lot from this episode and just like hearing your oh, approach. And like, I think, I think it's really cool, and I know people are gonna love it too. So, uh, I, I want to just say thank you for taking the time to to, to of do course, this. man. Start to wrap. My up. pleasure. If people want to learn more about you or follow you online or potentially even work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I don't have much of a social media presence. Uh, I don't really care for that kind of stuff myself. Um, or it's just not the kind of person I am. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram if you like pictures of cats and, um, (laughs) dark humor. It's not all, I don't talk about my work there, but I'm, if you want to follow me, you can. Um, and on that Instagram, uh, there is a link to, uh, Adam Katz, who is, uh, who handles everything for me. Um, if anybody wants to send me music, I listen to everything that people send me. I make a point of it. Um, I'm happy to talk to anybody who would want to make a record with me. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a huge online personality. Sorry. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, I can include links to, uh, to Adam and all that in the show notes too. So Great. if people want to send you some stuff, that's the way they can do it. Right on, man. Well, again, thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. So that was my interview with John Congleton, and I really enjoyed that. I thought he has a really refreshing approach to producing records, and I love the topic of trying to get things sounding the way they sound in the room and how it's one of the hardest things to do. And I thought that he shared some really cool tips there about ways that he approaches working with the artists or ways that he approaches mic positioning or headphone mixes to get the sounds to feel authentic and to feel real. You know, I think all of those things really go into making a record that has character and that has vibe and that feels authentic. So um, I just thought it was cool to hear John's approach to this kind of stuff. And I thought it was really refreshing because these days with digital technology, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the tech and to get consumed by the different plugins and the different ways that you can manipulate sound. But I really enjoyed John's approach to kind of just keeping it simple and focusing on the things that really matter in the recording process so that you get the sounds you're after. And things happen faster. You know, you're not wasting so much time trying to manipulate sounds. Instead, you just get it right at the source. And I definitely think that that's one reason why John is able to work fast and get a lot of projects done quickly. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I hope that you did, too. If you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live every Wednesday morning. That way you don't miss out. We've got lots of great interviews planned ahead. So definitely don't miss out. Make sure to subscribe. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians like you with creating pro-sounding recordings from your home studio. And if you're feeling stuck with your productions and you're not quite getting the quality that you're after and you need some help, that's what I help with. So definitely make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. One of the resources that's on there that you should definitely check out is a book called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book where I break down the process of mixing step-by-step, showing you what to be listening for, what tools to be using, how to dial in settings, all that kind of stuff. So definitely make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. Now, if you're the type of person who wants even deeper training and you want some one-on-one coaching to help you 
double down on the things you're working on and to get the clarity that you need. That is also something that I offer as well. So if you're interested in that, make sure to send me an email. My email address is info at masteryourmix.com and just simply reply with the word coaching. And based on that, I'll ask you a few questions to kind of learn a little bit more about you and your situation to see how I can help. And I would love to work with you to help you get your music sounding just as good as your favorite recordings. So once again, if you're interested in coaching, send me an email info at masteryourmix.com and just include the word coaching and I'll get back to you. So with that said, we have reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end and I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. Talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.